Hello everybody, welcome to another edition of the Value Line Observer with Val Hughes of The Value Guys. I am a 30-year Wall Street veteran who has taken on a secret identity and gone underground in order to provide my candid views on a handful of stocks out of each week's Value Line Investment Survey. You've seen my face on TV, you've seen me quoted in the news, but my bosses would never allow my unfiltered views on the air, so I've disguised my voice and they'll never know. <coughs> This week, I look at the September 3rd, 2010 edition of the Value Line Investment Survey, where I will have uh, three uh, new ideas this week. But before I get to that, a couple of important caveats. First, this show is for entertainment purposes only, uh, and that's not a guarantee. Secondly, um, I may have many important conflicts of interest uh, primarily, I may be saying the opposite of what I truly believe in order to somehow benefit myself. That's just what the lawyers say I need to say. Um, third, I'm quite likely woefully unprepared. So I just want to say that up front. And then fourth, as if that's not enough, I could be heavily drinking. I just want to be, you know, candid. So uh, there you have it. Um the format of the show is that uh, I'm going to have three pretty good value ideas out of this week's value line um, investment survey. But before I get to that, I have a little thing I like to call, it would help my portfolio if. It's a rant, really. Um, and this week, I would just say, you know, it would help my portfolio if we would stop having all this volatility that's going on. Uh, even in what's are supposed to be quiet months of the summer here, we're getting a lot of volatility. And I think it's clear the reason is simply that um, there's a lack of information um, about the likely path ahead. And uh, it seems there's a lot of things that seem kind of 50-50, you know, that are causing uh, particularly capitalists to have uh, take pause with their money. So there's record levels of cash with uh, on corporate balance sheets, undoubtedly. There's record levels of cash uh, on personal balance sheets. The savings rates are at levels, you know, unseen in a generation, in, in part because they're just positive. Uh, but I think they're in the high single digits. <clears throat> and so everyone has so much uncertainty, and I'm just, I'm, it's upsetting uh, we don't know. I mean, you can read uh, PhDs in economics on one side. You've got a guy arguing that uh, we're going to have deflation because that's what happened in Japan. And, um, you know, a lack of demand led to lower prices, which led to a waiting for lower prices still, which led to a lack of demand, and it just spiraled down. Um, and then you have the people that um, say, well, you know, you're going to have inflation because... Um, we're printing so much money. I mean, if you go and look at some of the stats that came out of the crisis, there was a lot of money printed and handed out, and uh, the money supply just started soaring. And, uh, you know, historically speaking, that tends to cause inflation at some future uh, point in time. Uh, right now, to the extent that there's extra money, people are hoarding it. They're not spending it on stuff. But eventually that may come back. 
Um, and so there's uncertainty. There's uncertainty about whether, uh, you know, the government, you know, is going to spend more, um, you know, going forward. And certainly over a normal investment horizon, there's a lot of, um, at least under existing law, a lot of concern about growing government spending as a percentage of GDP. I know that's my concern, and I think a lot of investors feel that way. On the other hand, you could have a political change that will somehow, uh, you know, enact uh, rules that maybe cause a, a flattening to a decline in the uh, percentage of government uh, spending that uh, is represented in GDP. So, you know, you could have that. Um, near term, taxes. Uh, you know, we, we could have higher taxes or we could have lower taxes. It's not clear. There's so many decisions that are in the hands of the government which don't seem like rational decisions. It's a lot of emotion voting one way or another that creates all this uncertainty. When there's rational decision makers just seeking some, again, as greedy as it might sound, at least profits are very clear. Everyone knows what they are. Everyone knows what everyone's trying to do, and everyone goes about the business of trying to do that. That's the invisible hand. Right now, you have enormous uh, power in the hands of the government in terms of, un, you know, un, uh, unrolling some of this uncertainty, and so you have massive lobbying going on because, in effect, your return on the investment in lobbying could be greater than the return on investment in R&D or sales or manufacturing capacity simply because you're seeking information or you're seeking ways to influence the outcome and you know this ladies and gentlemen this simply just can't go on because there's too much money if you thought there was too much money being spent just filling out tax forms right now there is simply too much money being spent at the level of capitalism where people could choose to invest in factories Instead, they're investing in lobbying, and uh, we need to get this cleared up. So it would help my portfolio if the uh, powers that be, the capitalists and the government, would get together long enough to work out this logjam of capital that's just sitting on balance sheets, and it's just a little bit of a crisis of confidence for good reason, uh, don't get me wrong, but if we could just pick a path, government, and I've ranted on this before, just pick something so we could move that aside and get down the road. You know, uh, in my office, I've just been, we've been working on an operating agreement. My partner and I, uh, you know, we had a long-standing sort of handshake that worked great, but we've needed, all of a sudden, we're entering into a a partnership and we needed an operating agreement and um, you know it's it's uh, it's uh, simply amazing how much time in the day is consumed by negotiating and talking to lawyers and things like that. I mean, meantime nothing's getting done. This is just in my office. Now it's over and we're getting down the road and we've you know done uh, done some good work there. I mean, it has to get done. But, I mean, you scale that up, the government, there's so much time being spent now on lobbying the government, hoarding cash, that 
nothing's getting done. And it would help my portfolio if they'd get through this period. I think the elections will help a lot. I actually anticipate that uh, after the election, either way, uh, whatever the rules end up looking like they're going to be over the next couple years, at least it will create enough clarity to drive a little bit of a rally in some area, uh, so, some kind of uh, level of confidence may creep in. Anyway, um, if we don't, you know, get get, get a real clear outcome, I, I think uh, the government, the uh, market may just continue to drift. Just this period of uncertainty. Um, I don't know. That's not much of a rant, anyway. Um, uh, let let me get to three good ideas this week, and I, they're pretty good. I have to give a little bit of an apology. You know, I, I basically took August off, and I've been there's about four and a half or five years of shows now. If you Google the Value Guys or iTunes uh, search on the Value Guys, and um, this year, you know went through a lot of changes and I moved and um, I think the show may have gotten a little more serious you know we used to get a little crazy on the show a lot more drinking um, and, and now I just you know I try to squeeze time in I'm doing a lot of traveling now and all that um, but uh, it's been a very interesting period in the market I know I have sort of taken August off but uh, we've been through this period of uncertainty this just tremendous uncertainty about the future, uh, and uh, you know it sounds c crazy. I mean, we're always uncertain about the future, but at least when there's a consensus and things um, are kind of stable in terms of the rules of the road, like taxes, tax rates. Um, you know, when you get into a period where uh, capitalists can invest with some confidence that the rules are good rules, fair rules, and they're apt to be unchanged over an investment horizon that for some things could be 10 years. You know, that gives a lot of people a confidence. When you look at uh, what capitalists are willing to earn on their money right now in terms of the money that's just in treasuries or in the banks earning 1% or less, it's unheard of. It really is. And I've talked about this before, but if you want to just go back, get educated a little bit on some of these metrics, if you go to the St. Louis Federal Reserve site and look up publications or data, there's a lot of great stuff in there you can get going all the way back into really into the 20s and earlier on interest rates and some of the big picture data. Um, and this is just a really unusual time for uh, for interest rates. And it just tells you how much uncertainty there really is. Because you got to figure that if you're earning 1% and inflation, there's got to be inflation. You just, most people, I think, I know the some economists think we're potentially in a period of deflation. I don't think so. I think you can run the presses and bring, you know, cause inflation and pre prevent deflation. But, um, uh, you know, investors in treasuries earning a couple percent after, you know, inflation. I mean, you're earning zero return that you're so uncertain about the future that you're willing to take zero or one percent return, um, you know, for the certainty that you get in those types of investments at the expense of not owning equities. I mean, um, 
or even in some cases riskier corporate debt that have uh, at least first seat at the table in bankruptcy. It's an unusual period, at least in my career, for bargains in the stock market, and uh, and so uh, I guess uh, you know there's three very good ideas today. I don't know what I'm talking about here, just going on in a little bit. But during August, um, I just uh, uh, really sort of hunkered down. You know, it was a tough period. And I think the notion that the economy might not be good next year, yeah, maybe it won't. But at these interest rates that I've just been talking about, you can really afford to wait, I guess would be another point I'd make. You're not losing anything by just waiting around to see what happens in the election because, uh, you know, your 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 alternative is to earn 1% or something like that. Um, you know, it's not like... Uh, um, you know the the present value of next year's dollars is is ninety percent of what it is in, in in past years at high inflation or high interest rate it, it costs you something to wait around uh, not anymore i mean you you really um, you really can afford to make the right investment because the present value of something you earn in year five or year ten even really matters whereas in past periods uh, using discount rates much higher the cash flow in year 10 almost uh you know vanished in a present value sense so it's really an interesting time when you've got these uh, cash flow rich companies trading at you know and we'll talk about some of them 15% cash on cash yields 20% cash on cash yields when the alternative is to earn 1 or 2% in uh something a little um uh, you know, pre presumably secure, but it's not secure to the extent that you're going to retain your, uh, uh, you know, the value of your principal if you're being eroded by inflation. So the very notion that a treasury is risk-free um, when, you know, you're risking the purchasing power of those dollars is, a, I guess, a time for it's another show. Anyway, um Three ideas this week, all out of the September 3rd issue. I don't have page numbers this week. I'm really pretty exhausted. I mean, one reason I haven't really been doing the show is I've just been traveling like a madman, coast to coast, and getting, you know, barely seeing my family, etc. So, but I'm going to try to be a little more consistent with the show here in the fall and, uh, and try to keep some ideas uh, fresh. Um, although, and I probably should say this up front, you can always go to www.thevalueguys.com. I do have a best ideas list there, and it's a pretty good list to mine at this point. There's, you know, maybe a hundred stocks up there that I own or have owned, and, uh, you know, uh, they're all uh, they're all in by original cost, return, you can see the price paid. I don't have target prices, but, you know, um, there's some valuation data in there, etc. So take a look at that. Okay, first up this week, um, and hopefully, if you're just interested in these stock ideas, hope maybe you fast forwarded to now. I certainly hope so. I'm I'm kind of bored myself actually with what I've been talking about, so uh, I'm fast forwarding as well. Uh, CEC Entertainment ticker CEC. I'm not doing page numbers anymore. Although maybe I should again, I don't know. 
Um, I've talked about this before. This is the Chuck E. Cheese Restaurant Company, uh, CEC, and uh, and I own it, and I've owned it for a while. I mean, about a year. And uh, you know, the first thing that catches my eye is it's just uh, it's it's inexpensive. It's eleven times earnings. I think the Wall Street Journal or somebody recently said PE is out of favor. Well. Uh, it was never in favor to the extent that you could rely on it solely, but when it's sitting at the top of the page and you're kind of paging through value line, it's certainly something that gets your attention 11 times. The inverse, 1 over 11, um, would presumably be my earnings yield. If PE is 11, E over P is 1 over 11, and I think that's 9%. So in a lot of markets, if you compare that 9% earnings yield to the Treasury bond, you know, there's no, you don't get a big difference, and you might say, gee, why do I own the equity? And then, of course, as some of us may recall, um, that was always the question. Ben Graham's original work talked about earnings yield as a metric that you should pay attention to and how it should be bigger than bond yields. But, you know, I think in the early 60s, stocks started having PEs, of course, due to the potential for growth, um, but, um you know, in order to account for it, uh, you basically had to uh, start adding that into some of Ben Graham's original uh, calculations for uh, for yield because you had to say now yield plus growth, which, um, you know, that needed to be bigger than the bond yield, and that's some sort of total return, and actually that makes more sense. But in Graham's day, you know, you could pick stocks on the basis of earnings yield alone, and that's another corollary to the 30s right now, is that you can look at earnings yield as some kind of initial metric because it, it now exceeds the bond yield again. And I think it tells you something about confidence and how, uh, you know, there isn't any now, and maybe that's the other corollary to the 30s. Um, at a 9% earnings yield, i got to keep looking. Oh, what, what do these guys have? Well, it's a restaurant. Okay, and for long-time listeners, you've heard me talk about needs not wants. We did have a little period here where we kind of, you know, got into the sort of wants not needs. But I think as a matter of course, given the uh, uh, capacity for consumers to take on debt combined with the uh, capacity of lending institutions to lend, I mean, the notion is that consumer discretionary expenditures uh, are going to have to, you know, come down as a percentage of GDP versus what they once were. And restaurants are an easy target because people can obviously, uh, you know, replace a restaurant meal with the meal at home. Um, you know, you buy a few candles, you put on a Pandora, uh, the lighting, you know. So... Um, so I'm normally not a big fan of restaurants because they're kind of commodities in a sense. Unless you're dating, and I totally get that. But even then, you'd rather create a nice environment in your home, in my opinion. So, not a big restaurant fan normally. But what I like about CEC is that I think they have something a little more unique. And that is that they cater to kids... Um, and so they're not only serving food, and it's, I think, pretty inexpensive food. And I know that because they put up a 40% operating margin as I start looking a little deeper into the metrics. And that gets my attention. 
that's in a that's that's got to be top decile of operating margins among companies. The other interesting thing about it is normally you might see that in a company that was licensing the name and they had a lot of franchises and they just took a revenue, you know, a, a, a share of revenue and, you know, they had a corporate headquarters. And you can have very high margins in those environments because all of the cost of the actual products and such is at the franchise level. But in this case, these guys own, they own 500 of their 546 stores, so they are store owners, um, and so uh, you know that's uh, that's pretty impressive to me. Um, they've had a very consistent return on capital, which suggests to me that they're managing this because stable returns on capital in a world with shifting interest rates and food costs and rents is not random. And they're, I mean, they're between 12 and 12.5% for the last five years. And, uh, you know, they were 13.5% the year before that and 15 before that. So there was a period where some costs came down. And that, that could simply be a matter of them learning how to buy hedging products or insurance products, which cause a permanently lower margin because you've created an insurance expense. But on the other hand, you've now... Um, smoothed out your margin, which in the marketplace is somehow more valuable. So it's very consistent. And their returns on equity are uh, well in the 20s and 30s. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's pretty pretty high. Now, they do sh show a high debt-to-capital, which scares some people off, 66% debt-to-capital. But as I may have talked about on the show before, um, you know, you got to look a little bit at coverage ratios. And in this case, you have uh, interest expense of about $15 million. So they've got, a, you know, an interest rate here that looks like it's about 5% or a little less than 5% on that debt, which is pretty good. And so $15 million, and yet their operating income is around 350 million and when you look back over time it's consistent as hell um, not the dollar amount but the margin there's never they've never lost money they do have a consistent history of buying stock again that helps stabilize their return on capital when they have a great opportunity to invest in a new location or a new concept or something and they've measured it and tested it they do that but if they don't they buy back stock and so they seem to be pretty good at doing that, as, as a matter of fact. Um, when I start to look, you know, at some other valuation metrics, um, this thing just continues to look interesting, particularly on an enterprise value to EBITDA basis, which, you know, we've uh, probably one of my favorite metrics because just like I talked about the earnings yield, E over P, um, <clears throat> The uh, the enterprise value really is trying to represent the cash cost we'd have to pay to have the rights to all the cash flows. So we'd have to buy all the stock, and then we'd also have to buy all the debt, and we could net that out against the excess cash on our balance sheet, you know, if we want to. It just depends, I guess, on what that's earning, which isn't always clear here 
uh, certainly on the cash side, but right now we know it's pretty low, probably not very meaningful. So in the case here, it's $675 million in market value. Uh, so that's the shares, you know, 21 million shares times the price, $31. And then, um, and then I'm going to add in the debt, total debt, $340 million. So that's going to get me just a, a little bit over a billion dollars in, in uh, total debt plus total equity. And then I'm going to subtract the cash, which isn't very meaningful here. It's about $15 million. That gets me to about a billion dollars in enterprise value. So if we all got together, you know, you know, kind of joined in uh, uh, together and got a billion dollars, bought the company, we would then have the right to their operating earnings, uh, their earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, which in value line, we know from past issues that the operating margin uh, times the revenue is trying to be that number. It's, so it's kind of operating income, but before depreciation and amortization, which is uh, the same as, uh, or pretty close to the same as uh, EBITDA. And so um, I've got $350 million in EBITDA that I get, and I've paid a billion dollars for the right to that. So if I'm doing the math right, 350 over a billion, that's 35%. And that means that a buyer could earn 35%. Now, what's wrong with this equation? Well, I have to tell you, I don't know. That's why I own it. Um, you know, uh, one reason the enterprise value to EBITDA is so much more compelling than the PE is this tremendously low interest rate they have compared to their returns on capital and equity. And so uh, the leverage in their case it really works for them. And so uh, it's, um, you know, it's something you probably wouldn't want to unwind necessarily. But if you just, um, you know, just the depreciation alone here is... Uh, is helping your cash flows because presumably the capital spending in any year is discretionary if it's a good location and you can earn a decent return you'll do it if you can't you won't and yet the depreciation is there in either case so you know obviously part of the valuation is that uh, you know recent results have been disappointing Chuck E. Cheese uh, evidently is you know not helping them during this period uh, comps, same store sales are going down. They've been up against a bunch of popular movies. You know, there's all kinds of problems here, according to Value Line, and why this year isn't that great. I'll just say this uh, consumer incomes are, uh, you know, not growing. Um, debt, uh, just debt capacity is down, debt availability is down, and, you know, a lot of that was driving this. The value of homes converted into, uh, you know, cash and home equity. It's just all gone now. Some of that's got to come out of these guys. I think that the comps are pretty good, and that doesn't affect my annuity value. You know, as a, as a value buyer, when I look at these yields, you don't hear me talking about growth. I just need to assume they're going to be annuities. If I get growth, that's just a bonus for me. 
uh, because a yield is a yield. How long will you take 35%? A long time until my new buyer is willing to get me down to about 10% instead of 35%. That implies a triple from here, and obviously I'm missing something because that's too good. It's got to be something about the leases. It could be something about just fear the debt won't get paid back. You know, I can't explain why this thing is so cheap, and I've tried to. And so I own it. CEC Entertainment, ticker CEC. Okay, that took a long time. Uh, sorry about that, and sorry about my voice. I've got some kind of cold here or whatever. Um, fortunately, the next two stocks I've already done in the past. So you can dial up a past show. If you pull our XML code into Internet Explorer, it sort of rolls in right by ticker and date. It's a real nice tool to index, so you can look for tickers in there and uh, and find some of this stuff on past shows. But the next two stocks, I mean, this issue had a lot of these uh, contractors, but you know, the fastest growing area of our economy right now is government. The fastest growing metropolitan area in the country right now is Washington, D.C., fastest growing in population, fastest growing in wages. So, Again, I can easily get that into a rant. But before I do that, which I'll save for another show, there's a couple stocks here. They're both government contractors. Uh, no, I'm sorry. No, they're not. This, this, this one is a government contractor. Um, SAIC, ticker SAI. Now, I've talked about this before. It's, uh, it's a provider of scientific engineering systems integration and technical services to various branches of the U.S. military, agencies of the U.S. Department of Defense and the intelligence community, and the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. So I think that um, under any type of administration, under any type of um, fiscal policy coming out of Washington, you know, this area of defense, um, and particularly homeland defense, I mean, they're going to get their share of GDP, and that's going to continue on for a long time. These guys appear over history to be pretty well managed uh, in this business. And the reason I say that is they have a very stable return on capital in the mid-teens. They have a very stable margin, right around 8% operating margin, which in this business suggests to me it's cost plus. Uh, so, you know, you your cost is 100, you add 10% to it, you bill 110, your costs are 100, 100 over 110 is you know, 91, and there's your 9% operating margin. So it's a pretty simple business in that regard. Uh, and therefore, you know, revenue growth is pretty key. And they continue to grow revenues. They've had a, um, well, you know, value line doesn't calculate it for me, but I can eyeball it here. And it looks like, um, you know, what? I'm going to say an 8 9% um, compound growth rate on sales over the last five years doesn't go any farther back than that and according to the text here in value line they've been landing a lot of decent um, contracts lately um, with the Navy and uh, with uh, let's see Department of Agriculture Farm Service Agency uh, some big contracts um, They've also acquired a business in the uh, ex explosives detection business, which is obviously something that is at least, I don't know how fast it's growing, but at least it's some kind of annuity. And, uh, 
you know, they just seem to be consistently getting out and um, and winning these things over time, and that must mean they have a process of recruiting the right people and talking to the right people and the right contact uh, management system and all those kinds of things that are important to driving the kind of consistency I'm seeing here. And so when I see a discount multiple, this one's 10.5 times earnings, which again, 1 over 10.5 has got to be nine and a half that's an earnings yield for a government contractor it's earning more than the government bond is and yet it's a government contractor plus you get growth on top of that so again what i don't understand obviously i don't understand but um it seems to me you could buy this thing all day long and short the government treasury and you'd you know you'd be fine somehow and some but i just who knows when um, but these these valuations just seem uh, to be awfully attractive at these levels. Again, if you don't have to be concerned about the timing. Um, so, you know, if you take uh, $1,000 out of the bank, you know, if you leave it in there, two years from now, you'll have, uh, what, $1,020, or the stock might double. So I don't... I don't get this whole, you know, short-term yield curve, you know, scenario we're in relative to these cash earnings yields on these stocks. There's just a big disconnect. And this is one that I think, um, again, it's a government contractor. They seem like they know how to just crank it out. I don't know much about You'd really want to know who the people are here and what, you know, what's their angle and, you know, how are they really winning. But, um they're well managed. They buy stock back, and I buy well managed. I just like the consistency of the total returns on capital, the consistent operating margin, and the willingness to buy stock back. In part, as I was saying earlier, to to maintain that stability. So SAIC ticker SAI, and finally, um, not a government contractor, but a uh, a cable television contractor. You know, maybe that's a little the same. A uh, CSG Systems ticker CSGS, and I have talked about this before. They provide services, billing services, to cable television and direct broadcast satellite providers. And of course, the market's concerned about the share loss in these areas, um, in the in the media compared to the internet, but. Um, I think that um, the niche here is simply a couple of things. One is it's the know-how to deliver individual bills to individual consumers. And, um, you know, uh, that, is a, that, that is a special skill set that traditionally has, um, if not earning superior margins uh, because of the uh, competition is at least earns, uh, you know, long relationships, um, and therefore, uh, ability to you know, really attach a decent annuity value to some of these relationships. And it, in part, it's because you're touching the customer the your billing guy, whatever your customer's opening, it's your billing process, the billing guy that's printing the stuff on there, getting it to the customer. And, um, in, you know, in some way, they, I'm not going to say they control the customer, they're representing the brand um, behind the bill, but even in, in the sense of the design of the bill and 
things that are touching the customer, if, if they can maintain a, a decent competitive price, they don't tend to lose those things. And so I think that as the cable television uh, industry and the broadcast satellite industry figure out how to navigate through here and you know they're so they're morphing from uh, providing content to providing data for the internet that then provides content it's really it's all the same wire and in many cases these guys own it either way and so um, and billing in some cases can come along with the expansion of customers for some of the you know, uh, content providers that are apt to come over the internet disintermediating the cable guy, um, they're still going to need to have billing. And it may be that the influx of customers overwhelms uh, their process. Or it could be that, you know, if you start to get HBO over the internet, you're not, you're not going to want to type in your own stuff and they'll turn to a billing company that already has your information. I don't know, but... That's the debate that's going on because this thing is four times EBITDA. And again, what that means is that, um, you know, us and our friends could go out and raise $540 million. With that money, we would, um, we'd buy all the stock here. That would cost us $600 million. We'd buy all the debt. That would cost us $160 million. That's $760 million. But then this company has $230 million in cash on the balance sheet, which is about 8 bucks a share, 7 bucks a share anyway. We can subtract that out. We don't need that. So that gets us down to about you know, $540. If I'm doing the math. I'm probably not doing it right. $540 net cash. We need to buy it. And the uh, EBITDA here... Again, according to Value Line, is a 27% margin on $555 million in revenues. And uh, what's the math on that? That's about $150 million or something like that. I don't know. Again, I don't have a calculator here. But um, let's see. If I take 555 divided by 2, that's like 275, 140. So it's 140. Something like that. 140 into 540. What's that? Four and a half times? Again, the inverse of four and a half is going to be, I think, like 22.5% cash on cash return. If we bought the whole company, we would earn a 22.5% cash on cash return. Or we could earn 2% in the treasury market. You know, I I don't understand it. These guys have some debt, but they have cash to offset it. They're not going anywhere. Their revenues are not going down. Their margins are not going down. Their returns on capital have been consistently in the mid-teens for every year on this page, which is 20 years. Uh, You know... Value Line doesn't do a great job in their valuation section, but they do show a relative PE here going back a bunch of years. And obviously it's an average of a year. It's almost useless information. But when I look back, the lowest numbers on the page are 50.51 and 0.62. Right now we're at 0.68. So, you know, if we're in the years where we're a little above average, okay. But there's going to be a year where uh, it trades towards a, a market multiple. And uh, 
who knows when that is, but if it is, there's a lot of upside here, not a lot of downside. CSG Systems, ticker CSGS, and there's some detail here. I don't really want to get into it all at all. It looks, you know, mostly good. They've got some new customers, and earnings should move higher, you know, I don't know. Anyway, CSG Systems. And so uh, that's it. That's it for this week's show. And, uh, you know, I guess it was a medium show. I don't know. I'm kind of sleepy. But let's see. I'm going to tell you what my favorite idea is this week. Uh, I'm a little biased because I own it, but what the heck? At least I'm telling you that. CEC Entertainment, ticker CEC. And uh, I guess that's every everything I have this week. So thanks for listening in, everybody. This has been Value Line Observer with Val Hughes, a sleepy Val Hughes. Uh, check out all our stuff at www.thevalueguys.com, and I'll see you next week, everybody.